So if you weren't with us last week, I'll do my best to try to bring us up to speed a little bit. This summer uh, at the Kingstown Communion, we're going to be working our way through the book of Romans. If you're not familiar with the order of the New Testament, I'm not going to assume that anybody here has a working knowledge of the New Testament. Uh, It is the Gospels first, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then directly after that is the book of Acts, which we're also pretty certain is written by Luke. It's kind of like the history book of the New Testament. And then after that is the book of Romans. And Romans is the first of this string of letters to the early church. But Romans is a bit different than the rest. First of all, Romans was one of the last letters that Paul wrote. And it it has been placed at the very beginning, mainly because of its theological weight, its heft, its importance, tells us something about the importance of Romans that it's placed first. Last week, I admitted um, that up until recently, I really haven't been that big of a fan of Romans for a lot of different reasons. So uh, it's convoluted. The guy who wrote it, Paul, is making some really intricate arguments. And then honestly... Lots of people have quoted Romans in ways that have just wounded me and my friends. A lot of people have used Romans in ways to hurt, to isolate, to divide, to leave out. And so, to give you the insider scoop on why I started reading Romans, this weekend marks the beginning of my third year of ministry with the Kingstown Communion, and Yesterday, I received my invitation to apply for full ordination, something that happens in your third year. Some of you may be thinking, you're not ordained? What? This is just the way the United Methodist Church works. It's like three provisional years, and then you apply for ordination. And so if I didn't love Romans before now, um, I've got to figure it out because a part of the requirements for ordination is to write a Bible study on the book of Romans. And I work smart, not hard. And so I thought, how will I make the time and room in my life to dig really deeply into Romans? Write a sermon series on it. Write a bunch of sermons on it. And I have to say, I'm truly, I'm truly a convert. I am a Romans convert. I'm a fan of Romans now. My hope this summer is just to share with you a little bit about what has changed in my reading of Romans. I laid all of that out last week, and so if you weren't here, I really suggest going back and listening to um, last week's sermon on our live feed or um, online, mostly because I I used some images on on I used some images on the screen last week that were fairly important for this series. So earlier this week on Monday, before I went out of town, I was meeting someone for coffee in the afternoon. And I was running late, which Brett and Stephanie can attest, I'm always running late. <laughs> it's nothing usual for me. And of course, I pull out an excuse, feel like I got to say something. I apologize. Oh, I had all these errands to run and I needed to swing by the gym. And before I could say anything else, the woman says, oh, I can tell. You are slimming down. You're obviously shredding some, shedding some inches. You're, you're looking good. And I thought, that is great news. <laughs> but entirely inaccurate. I have not been to the gym in quite some time. 
and I know how my pants have been fitting, <laughs> right? And I had one of those moments when I had to decide whether I should be honest or not because no one's going to be hurt if I'm like, yeah, girl, I've been shredding, <laughs> right? But at the same time, you kind of hate to lie to the lady. And so I said, well, I should probably confess something to you. I, I said, I had been to the gym. What I meant was that I had gone to the gym to reactivate my residential access key because I haven't been in a single time since I moved into Kingstown in 2015. That's the way it works, right? Like, I got to thinking, too, going to the gym really does you no good. I mean, we could all go to the gym, right? Going to the gym doesn't make us more healthy, doesn't slim us down, get us in shape. Technically, technically I was at the gym, but it's what you do at the gym that matters. If you go to renew or cancel your membership, technically you're there. If you go to get a smoothie, technically you're there. But it's not going to help you slim down or buff up. You have to do something in particular while you're there. And then to extend this, being a member of a gym does you no good. They can charge your account every month. Doesn't mean you're going to actually show up. And it doesn't mean you're going to get stronger or fit because you are a member of a gym. And to extend it even further, if you work out at the gym every week, perhaps even every day, and you're faithful to go and to offer yourself over to the machines that cause you pain, if you go and you commit yourself to the gym and then you swing by Wendy's every time on the way home and pick up that burger and Frosty, it's probably not going to help you. The gym is almost irrelevant when it comes to being in shape, being physically fit. Coming to church, if you didn't see that swing coming, that metaphorical swing, coming to church is the exact same way. You can come, but it's not going to help you unless you do something while you're here. In all honesty, you could be a member of a church, technically you're a member of a church, technically you're an attendee and you write a check every week, and it's not going to help you be more spiritually connected to God unless you're doing something while you're here. Unless you're offering all that you have, all that you are to the work of God that happens here. And to extend that metaphor even one more step, honestly, you could come on Sundays and give everything you have, write that check, but then on your way home, if you swing by the poor and don't help, or you swing by the sad person and you don't comfort, or you swing by the lonely person and you don't offer yourself as a friend, technically, technically you go to church. Our lives of faith, our spirituality, our relationship with God through faith in Christ is not something we can do by technicality. It's something we have to invest in, in a significant way. Paul is writing to two groups of people, as we talked about last week, the Jews and the Gentiles. And at this point in time, there are no Christians. Christians do not actually exist yet. There are just people who follow Jesus, and most of them happen to be Jewish. That means that they practice all the same customs as Jewish people, and they live in all the same ways that the Jewish people lived in communities with other Jewish people. And then there are other people who are not Jewish. We call them Gentile, which means they're non-Jewish. 
it's um, the Jewish people, and then there's everybody else. Everybody else, the Gentiles, who have started to also hear the story of Jesus and to be compelled by that story too, and who begin to pursue a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ themselves. And as I explained last week in Rome, all the Jewish people were kicked out. So over the course of a few years, the church in Rome had become almost exclusively Gentile, made up of Gentile believers. And Gentiles, because they are not Jewish, don't do Jewish things. But Paul is now sending along with the new, along with the new emperor, he's sending back to them their Jewish Christian brothers and sisters in Christ. And Jewish people with faith in Jesus and and Gentile people with faith in Jesus are going to now have to exist together in the same family, in the same church. The problem is we have two different groups of people who believe that the other group of people don't do it in the right way. One group says technically, technically in order to be a Christian, you have to do Christianity like this. And the other group of people says, well, technically, technically, in order to be a Christian, you don't really have to do all that stuff, right? We've got two groups of people who think they're going, they're going on the right path, that they're doing the right thing, so that technically they have relationship with Jesus Christ. And Paul, Paul is challenging them both out of their bounded set mentalities. I talked about a little bit about the bounded set last week. It's this mathematical principle that, there, that there's this movement from out to in, but there are two divided, um, it's divided by a barrier, this boundary that there are people that are out and there are people that are in, and that the goal of faith is to cross over that boundary, right? Instead, I introduce this other way of thinking about faith. There's not those who are out and in, rather... It's the centered set, not the bounded set. The centered set uh, says that all of us, all of us are either moving further away from Jesus, who is the center, or moving closer to Jesus, who is the center. And in the midst of this conversation, Romans 2 has just blown my mind. Seriously, it, it might just be that I get overly excited about these things. I don't know, but... I want to show you what I think could be one of the most transformational passages in scripture. So if you will, follow along with me um, in your bulletins. You have the scripture in there. I'm gonna, we're going to get really evangelical today. Y'all are going to actually read and follow along with some scripture. So taking a look at verse 14. Read along with me. Gentiles, people who don't know the law, non-Jewish people, Gentiles don't have the law, but when they instinctively do what the law requires, they are a law in themselves, though they don't have the law, though they don't know the law. They show proof of the law written on their hearts, and their consciences affirm it. Their conflicting thoughts will accuse them or even make a defense for them on the day when according to my gospel, Jesus or God will judge the hidden truth about human beings through Jesus Christ, our Lord. While still looking at the text, 
here's what I believe Paul is saying to us today. When Gentiles, when non and nominally Christian, the, the, that category of spiritual but not religious, the nuns that everyone keeps writing about and talking about and doing all the statistics about. When non-anomaly Christians who do not possess a knowledge of the Bible, who do not know what they think about God, who do not know our law, our scriptures, our way of following Jesus, do not know it by those names, by that term, do instinctively what Jesus asks of all of us anyway, though not having knowledge of Jesus in the same way we do, they are understanding this Jesus fella on their own. I mean, isn't that just radical? Let's continue. They show that by doing what Jesus asks of them, that it's written on their hearts to which their own consciences have instructed them to do and anything they may not understand in exactly the way we understand it will perhaps excuse them on the day when according to my gospel, God through Christ Jesus will judge the secret thoughts of all of us. That's radical. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? What do you think of that? And then Paul says, but you all, you who call yourselves Christians and who come to church every week and wear your Kingstown communion t-shirt and boast of your relationship with God and know God's will and you understand perfectly everything God would have you understand and you have determined what is best because you have been instructed by the wisest pastor around. (laughs) And you are sure that you are more clear, you see more clearly than everyone else does and that you see the light when everyone else sees darkness and that you can correct the foolish and chide the hard-hearted and you have the law, the embodiment, the knowledge of the truth. You then who teach yourselves, who think you know everything, will you not teach yourselves? Because while you preach against stealing, you live in one of the wealthiest zip codes in Virginia. You who forbid adult, adultery, do you not turn away from God and choose other lovers sometimes? You who have are made uncomfortable with conversations of Buddha and Muhammad and crystals and symbols of other faiths, do you not erect your own kinds of idols? You that boast in your faithfulness, do you not dishonor God by also breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is slandered in our culture because of the way you're living out your Christianity. Thank you. Thank you, Romans, right? Thank you, Romans. The number of times and the number of ways we in the church, not we particularly at the Kingstown Communion, y'all are good people. I mean, that's why you're part of this church, right? Because you think it's not judgmental. But the number of ways we have used these same words to tell people that they're not good enough, that they don't belong, that they're outside, that they may be doing good things, but that doesn't fully count because they're not fully right. The ways that 
We've used Paul's words in really jerky ways to wound. Should these words not also hold us accountable? Ow! Ow! Thank you, Romans! In the Jewish community, circumcision was a mark of full inclusion. But Paul, Paul gets really gutsy. Paul begins to tear down some assumptions. And Paul says, circumcision doesn't actually make you more faithful. Did you not know that? Calling yourself a Christian, being baptized doesn't make you a Christian. Any more than going to the gym makes you buff. A bounded set mentality is to say, I'm circumcised and you're not. I'm Christian and you're not. I'm baptized and you're not. Therefore, I'm in and you're not. But a true Christian, a Christian grounded in the centered set who lives and moves with Jesus says, this thing, circumcision, The purpose is to remind me daily that I am not my own, but God's. Or, for us, this thing, baptism, I take it, I take these vows that I took really seriously. Paul also goes on to say, if you are circumcised and you break the law, doesn't doesn't that nullify your circumcision anyways? Therefore, couldn't also the opposite be true? Couldn't those who are uncircumcised and have no idea of the law, but seem to instinctively live it out anyways, couldn't they be living out an inward form of circumcision? For a person is a Jew not because of being one outwardly, but of being one inwardly. Real circumcision, real baptism, is a procedure of the heart. So then I asked that now I asked that daunting question as I'm reading Romans I asked that daunting question which Paul even anticipates his people asking what good is it then what good is all of this what good is the law what good is coming to church then what good is calling myself a Christian what good is it to be baptized what good is following Jesus intentionally if I can do all the right things what good is all of this. If people who just do good but don't speak and profess the name of Jesus are also in, what good is all of this? (laughs) Paul knows his people are asking that question. So then what good is it to be Jewish, Paul asks. Much, much, he says, much in every way. In the first place, The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And in the first place, Christians have been entrusted as the body of Christ on this earth with a real purpose, a mission, a charge to speak on behalf of God to the world. Not a word of challenge telling people they don't belong, but a word of invitation So wait, wait, me coming here, me getting up on a Sunday and coming to worship in the park, investing in community, all of this isn't for my own personal salvation. It's, it's for my, it's not for my personal assurance of faithfulness. And it's not for my personal assurance of eternity. Hold on. What? This is all, this is all to be a part of a mission, a challenge, a purpose 
that's bigger than me and my personal salvation? Huh. And then Paul anticipates the next question that follows that. The question we are thinking today, the question I thought as I worked my way through this particular hermeneutic, my way up the mountain, Paul anticipates this same question. Well, if this is true, if all of this is to be a part of some mission, a challenge, a purpose that's bigger than me, what happens if I'm not faithful enough to carry out that mission? What if, what if some of us, the church, don't live up to that bar that's been set for us? By, by their faithfulness, will it nullify the faithfulness of God, Paul asks? By no means. By no means, he says. The faithfulness of God is greater than our unfaithfulness. The faithfulness of God is greater than our ability to be unfaithful. You cannot be more unfaithful than God is faithful. As I read these words and felt a great deal of challenge, as one who teaches, I hear Paul loud and clear, you who teach, will you not also teach yourself? I think I was most challenged by this question. Do I, do I, Michelle, by the job that I do, by the work that I do, by the things that I teach, the things that I preach, the things that I practice, the ways that I serve, do I, by any of those things, find myself more inside the boundary than others? Or if it's by my faith that I'm moving closer and closer to the center, which is Jesus Christ, How's that going for me? And I'll be honest with you, and this will fall in the category of things you never want your pastor to say, but as I began to self-assess, I didn't do too well. I think for myself personally, I'm at a place where I need a bit of a revival in my life. I need a little bit more of a spiritual center. I need a little bit more of a place where I can connect with God through faith. This past year for me has perhaps been one of my happiest, to tell you the truth. I I don't know if I've ever been more satisfied, but this year has also been a year of great striving. I have put all that I can put into all that I could put it, and if something happened, it I felt like it was because I put all that I could put into it. And so by technicality, I had given everything. Technically, I was giving all of myself. By technicality, I'd given everything that I could possibly give, but the end of my second year at Kingstown is now marked with a recognition that all the work that I did, all the effort I put forth, all the things that I tried, pales in comparison to the need for a faith, a faith that calls me closer and closer and closer to the God who loves me, who is consistently inviting me, a God who is willing to, against all odds, look over the sins of my past to justify me, not because of who I am, what I've done, but to justify me because of who he is and what he's done. I'm serious when I say to you, I need some more faith in my life. And so I wonder if I'm not the only one who needs the same. 
I wonder how many of us feel like we've been striving, pushing as hard as we can to do everything we know to do in order to be the people that we know God is calling us to be. And in all that straining and that stressing, all that earning that we might realize in ourselves that whatever we try, we're always going to fall short. And all of us without distinction, having all fallen short, need that same faith. That faith that God came to offer us through Jesus Christ. And so here's my question for you this morning. If you were to rate your faith on a scale of 1 to 10, this is a question I've been asking myself lately. If you were to rate your faith on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being like I'm the most awesome and super faithful person in the whole world, which actually means you're a 1, <laughs> and 1 being I'm just, I'm just trying to do my best to earn my way through this religious thing with all kinds of straining and striving. Do you, do you need the same revival in your life that I need in mine? If your answer is yes, let's like get coffee and talk. I love that. If your answer is no, I'd love to chat with you so that you can help me because I certainly, I certainly need a revival. I certainly need to be undergirded by the faith of Jesus and stop striving so hard.